0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level
1: podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. This is Making Waves at Sea Level, the podcast for those who shake things up in business and are focused on growth and success. Thank you so much for picking this podcast. Let's face it, there's over two and a half million podcasts that have been launched and yet... Here you are again week after week as we sit down and interview people who are making waves at the sea level and beyond because you're interested in how do you grow your business? How do you shake things up and how do you make waves? And today, that's going to be our topic. We're going to talk about disrupting the game. How do you shake things up and make some waves and really have an impact? And our, ga- our guest today is Reggie Fiseme. And he is the former COO and president of Nintendo of America. Hey, Reggie, welcome to the show. Um, Thanks for having me. Hey, so for those of you who don't know Reggie, besides his role at Nintendo, he's had an eclectic career of shaking things up. He's the guy who has launched big, wacky products into the marketplace like Bigfoot Pizza and the Nintendo Wii, and many other things. And he started his career at Procter & Gamble. He worked for Guinness. He worked for Pizza Hut. He worked for VH1. And then he reached that president and COO role at Nintendo of America. And now he's semi-retired. He's written a brand new book called Disrupting the Game. And he speaks regularly, writes regularly, and gives his advice to business people on how they can disrupt the game and make waves. So Reggie, Let's jump in. Give me a little bit of your background. How did you get started in business and, and what led you on that trek to launching big, wacky products?
0: Absolutely. So uh, my path is a bit of a typical immigrant story. I'm a first generation American. I bootstrapped myself to attend Cornell University. Oh, very nice.
1: Very nice. During, I, I, little, little Ivy League education there. My, my daughter is at Dartmouth. Oh,
0: there you go. That's fantastic. You know, for me, I I thought I was going to be a banker. I I love numbers. I was oriented uh, to go work in banks for internships. I majored in finance and accounting. I I saw my path as international banking, getting an MBA, pushing forward on my career, and then a bit of a left turn happened. As an undergraduate, I was asked to interview for Procter and Gamble's Brand Management Program. This is a program that has spawned all of these great business leaders, people who've gone on to run a variety of different companies, including uh, Procter & Gamble. And it's a it's a way for you to think about how to grow your little brand, your little business. I worked on brands like Crisco Shortening. I worked on some test market brands. I worked in the soft drink industry when, when Procter & Gamble owned uh, Orange Crush and Hires Root Beer. And it was all of this orientation of thinking about how to grow your business. Um, what I learned about myself is I don't like slow-moving businesses. I, I was not happy growing a business 2%, 3 4%. That just wasn't in my nature. So I was constantly challenging uh, the status quo, coming up with all of these different types of ideas to the point where I broke a cardinal rule at Procter & Gamble. I overspent my budget. I put forward an idea that uh, was unfunded at the time. It grew the business tremendously. But after eight years at P&G, my career was over. And I gravitated to the restaurant industry, very fast-paced, launched Bigfoot pizza, two-foot-by-one-foot rectangular pizza that took on Little Caesars in the 1990s and, and really halted their growth for a good 20 years. Uh, I gravitated toward the, uh, the beer and spirits business, eventually entertainment business, and then eventually uh, to Nintendo of America and the global Nintendo business. So, you know, my, my nature is to always look at businesses a bit differently than others, come up with ideas that are non-traditional. And fortunate, fortunately for me, those ideas have worked in the marketplace,
1: no, well, that's interesting because so many people who I talk to and, and, and in my own life, you know, they're working in companies that really need to have a little bit of disruption. They, they, they need a little shaken up uh, to do it. They, they, they can't rest on the laurels of their brand and what they did yesterday. They've got to get out there and do that. So when you're in an industry that needs new ideas, that needs to be shaken up, maybe needs to be taken down to the foundation and rebuilt, how do you even decide where to start this disruption?
0: You know, for me, in my practice, the way I approached it was first I got into the data, right? And I think this speaks to my financial background, my orientation toward numbers and data and consumer insights. I got into the data and the facts to truly to truly understand what's going on in the fundamentals of a of a business. And let me give you an example. So I worked at Nintendo when uh, in the early 2000s, the video game business was actually stagnating. Mm. You know, while uh, the, the product put out by Sony, the PlayStation 2, was dominating the marketplace, the overall business was stagnating. And we went deep into the numbers to try and understand why this was happening. Interestingly, Sony, as well as Microsoft's Xbox product, they thought the issue was, you know, the graphics weren't pretty enough, the processing power wasn't strong enough. And at Nintendo, we saw a completely different problem. We saw that there wasn't enough innovative games, that the controllers were actually getting too complicated. So we simplified the controllers. We put out a very innovative and different types of games. And guess what happened? We disrupted the marketplace. Uh, the, we launched a product called the Nintendo DS, went on to sell over 150 million devices, almost a billion games, and games are where the profitability reside. And then we went on to launch The Week. Uh, a system that sold over 100 million uh, devices, almost 925 million games. But it was all based on this core insight of what's going on in the marketplace. Why aren't people buying as many games as we thought they should? And then how do you create content and innovation that, that directly addresses the consumer needs you found?
1: So I love the idea of and I can remember this. I have kids who were were little in the early two thousands and I can remember the controllers, the the the, the sticks were, were way too complicated. There was too many buttons and then the Wii came up and there was like three buttons and you just had to shake it and move it in different ways. So I love the idea of simplification i I see this in a lot of businesses i see this in trade associations they start you know trying to do everything for everybody and they have too many products and services that they're that they're offering people and so scaling back to simplicity is is a really good idea but you know isn't there some danger in that i mean if you go too simple is it is it you know is it going to be appealing what where's the where's the the fine line
0: you know, the, the fine line is different in every category, in every business, but I, I agree that simplification or thinking about it a different way, moving forward on a vector, on a discipline, on an approach that is fundamentally different than what your competitors are doing, typically is going to lead to breakthrough ideas and, and doing things differently, but in a way that the consumer or the purchaser of the product is going to find appealing. So on one hand, you're cutting off all of the extraneous factors that really the purchaser doesn't care about, but focusing in on the one or two or three things that really are going to be meaningful for the buyer and driving innovation in those particular areas.
1: So, Reggie, I love this idea of of doing it differently than the way all your competitors are doing, because the truth of the matter is in in every industry that I've worked in and and industries that I've consulted in, you know, if if you say, oh, look over there, what they're doing, we'll do it that way. I I used to work in legal marketing and there was a firm called uh, Wombo Carlisle, Wombo Carlisle, who did a amazing series of ads using the managing partners, Bulldog in all the ads. And the idea was they were Bulldogs in court or something like that. And it was a huge hugely successful campaign, grew the firm, did everything you would want a marketing campaign to do. And suddenly every law firm you could find was doing calendars with all their partners, holding their dogs and cats and, uh, you know, other things where they were using different types of dogs that belong to the managing partner or whatever. And it's like, suddenly it's like, well, is that marketing? If you're just saying, look what they do. I used to compare it to, uh, if you watch little kids play soccer, like really little kids, there's no strategy. One kick kid kicks the ball to the left and everybody runs to the left. One kid kicks the ball to the right and everybody runs to the right. So that's pretty common in all of these businesses. So if you're going to do things differently than your competitor, if you're going to strip some things down, down to the the studs, how do you get your coworkers, your board, your boss, other people involved in saying, okay, let's go there.
0: Well, I, I think there is a, a couple different things. First, I'm a big believer that when you're going to disrupt your industry, the best place to look for different ideas is actually outside your industry. Look look at what's happening in different parts uh, of uh, the world. Look at, look at what's happening in, in different industries and then think about how to apply it back to your own particular industry. And then once you've got that idea, once you've got that approach You have to communicate it and communicate it and communicate it. You need to help people understand why you're doing it differently. You need to help people understand the ultimate payoff in what it is that you're trying to do. You know, at Nintendo, when we were changing the industry with the Nintendo DS and with the Wii, we actually used business books, market leading business books. As a way to help people understand what it was we are trying to do. We use the book Blue Ocean Strategy uh, that talks about how you need to escape the blood red waters of direct competition and move to blue waters of opportunity. And we thought that it was a great analogy for what it was that we were trying to do. And we used it relentlessly with media, with our our employees, with shareholders to help them understand what it was that we were doing. And then, Tom, the last thing you need to do is you need to execute with excellence and have the success to point to, to generate the confidence and to generate the belief that what it is you're doing is going to pay off in the long run. You know, all too often, you know, uh, an organization might initially stumble. And at that point, they pull back from all of the innovation. Oh, we've made a mistake. We need to pull back. You know, I would argue that if on your innovation journey, you stumble, you actually need to figure out how to fail forward. You need to figure out what was correct in what it was that you were doing. And then how do you apply that, with even more urgency to move forward in order to get the success, and uh, and you know, again, I, I've been fortunate to apply those those types of principles in my work, and then to help others see this path and see this journey. You
1: know, it's interesting you talk about sort of those red waters of competition, where like we were saying, everybody's doing what the competitors are doing. They're trying to just undercut price. They're trying to outmarket them. Everybody's the same, and you want to get out there. To those blue waters of, of opportunity, I am a real big believer that if you're going to have opportunities, you've, you've got to have, you know, sort of within your team and, and within your customers, you have to have sort of that sense of community. You need to have that sense of collaboration and you have to have more and more conversations to find out what people want and where they want to go. So I, I say the words a lot, community, uh, collaboration and conversation can solve all problems. How does that fit into what you're saying?
0: Well, absolutely. In in terms of community, you know, understanding who your customers are, understanding what their wants and needs are. But Tom, I have to give you a caveat. I have found in my experience that typically if you give consumers exactly what they've been clamoring for, typically that's not an innovation. And typically that's not going to lead you to long-term success. It may give you a couple of short-term wins, But I've actually found that when you deliver something completely unexpected, relevant, meaningful, something that, you know, in the broad scheme of desires is something that they're interested in, but it needs to be a bit unexpected to capture their attention in order for it to really be a long-term disruptive idea. So community, absolutely, but also relevant, but unexpected and meeting their needs. In terms of the communication aspect, you know, I couldn't agree more. And, and I find that oftentimes businesses do stumble because they, they believe that communicating something once or twice is enough. You need to communicate it relentlessly in order to really have people understand what it is you're trying to do and then to believe it, uh, to, to have the same passion that you do in pushing the idea forward.
1: God, I'm loving this conversation and I've got so many more things that, that I want to, to talk to you about. But first, I have to thank the, the sponsor of this episode. So this episode, like all of them, is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Now, I know a lot of you listening want to start your own show because 2.5 million people have started podcasts. So there's a lot of it still going on. In fact, the association that I work for, I'm gonna give a little caveat here. This is the first announcement. Often for people who listen regularly, we've been co-sponsoring episodes of uh, uh, Making Waves at Sea Level with the Austin Technology Council. And the Austin Technology Council is now about just weeks away from launching a podcast that is going to be all about the Austin tech community and how to disrupt it and how to communicate and how to have better connections for that long run. So I know a lot of people want to start podcasts because I'm in the process of starting a whole other one. So if you do remember that Podfly does all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience and interviewing people who are making waves like Reggie Fissime. Hey, For an exclusive offer for people who listen to this podcast, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. All right. So, Reggie, when you're disrupting a business, you have to make a lot of difficult and courageous decisions. How do you even get to be, you know, courageous in this? How How do you get there?
0: you know look I, I, all i can do is share a few examples from from my background in terms of being faced with really tough decisions and being able to on one hand logic your way through them uh, also relying on a bit of gut and instinct to be able to get to uh, to a great place so two really quick examples you know we've we've mentioned bigfoot pizza this large rectangular pizza launched by, by Pizza Hut in the early 1990s. It was a recessionary time. Uh, consumers were looking for a lot of food for their money. Little Caesars, their punchline, right? Two pizzas, one low price was pizza, was pizza, doing pizza. really yeah. Pizza pizza was doing really well in the marketplace. So Nintendo uh, excuse me, Pizza Hut launched uh, Bigfoot pizza. A little bit more expensive than Little Caesars, but we also offered delivery. This became a billion dollar business from zero to a billion dollars in just a few months time. It was dominating the marketplace, generating significant profitability for Pizza Hut. I was responsible for that business, responsible for analyzing it, understanding it, launching new iterations. And I saw a troubling fact. I actually saw that because we used different ingredients, arguably cheaper ingredients to get to the price points, that the consumer was noticing that the quality of these this pizza wasn't the same as the Pizza Hut regular branded quality. In fact, it was inferior. And this inferior product quality was starting to affect the mother brand of Pizza Hut. I'm seeing all of this in the data. And so I was the one, the, the one months before who had advocated for the launch of this product, I now had to advocate to shut this billion dollar business down because if we didn't, it was going to erode the overall quality image of pizza hut. And that would have been disastrous for the company. So it was a hugely courageous decision and, and it was based on data insight, seeing what was happening actually in the marketplace, seeing the product that was being made, you know, across the country. And, you know, I had to, to push for what I believed was the right decision, incredibly painful decision. And in, in the end, the, the company accepted my recommendation. We shut this business down. But, you know, th- these are the, the types of difficult decisions that you have to make and you, you need to do them with confidence, with knowledge, with insight and in pushing them forward.
1: You know, it's so interesting that you were the, the advocate behind launching it. And then just months later was the advocate for saying this isn't working. I mean, that unto itself has to be courageous to say, hey, by the way, my project sucks. Let's shut it down. That's that's something you don't see very often. So often I run into so-called leaders who kick the can down the road, pretend everything's fine, hide the numbers as best they can, you know, from from people. And that's not leadership. What you just what you just described is leadership. Absolutely. It, it, it is the, the, the art, uh, the internal
0: fortitude of, of making those difficult decisions and fighting for those difficult decisions. You know, Tom, the other example I'll share with you. So we've talked a little bit about the Wii, right? This magical product with this one-handed controller. The, the, the decision that really helped make Wii this cultural phenomenon was the decision to include a game called Wii Sports in every package of Wii hardware that was sold really in in the Western two thirds of the world. So the, the, the U S Europe, Australia, everywhere, but Japan. And I was the one who fought to include Wii sports as part of the overall proposition. And when, when I say fought, it was a huge battle because the, the game developers knew that this was a foundational piece of software it was it was something that everyone once they started to play they they couldn't put down the controller they wanted to play it time and time again. but what I saw was an opportunity to create a cultural phenomenon to have this common point of entry into the Wii business. And something that essentially, as soon as you opened up the box and plugged in the game console, you could have fun right away with family members. And it was an incredibly difficult decision to get the company to agree to include it to the point where, you know, the, the home headquarters in Kyoto, Japan decided they didn't want to do it in the Japan marketplace. But that decision is what led to uh, we being such a cultural phenomenon. And you could actually see the difference in the results in the Western part of the world versus what was happening in Japan in terms of the, the way the consumer was reacting to the product. So incredibly courageous. forego uh, profits and, and revenue by not selling this piece of software, but created a cultural phenomenon that really propelled this business for you know, six, seven, eight years.
1: So, so let me make sure that I and, and people listening fully understand it. By including it, it meant that you weren't selling the game. And we have said, you said earlier that selling the games is where the real profit is. So essentially a game that was going to be a good game You know, you weren't going to get the profit off that game. However, you created that sameness that everybody had the game, which meant that every kid who was out there who was playing it was playing Wii Sports. And so, therefore, they had something in common. And this goes back to we're living in a world where everybody wants to specialize in silo, you know, and there's so many options out there. I mean, when I was growing up and and when you were growing up, we had, you know— three news stations at night, and they played the news at 6 p.m., and we had Walter Cronkite or whoever it was of your age generation, Dan Rather, you know, whoever the top newscasters were, but there were only a couple of choices, so we all shared that evening experience of learning about the world, and there was a commonality within the culture. Now, each of us have the choice of about 2,000 different places we could get our news right now on our phone, and we consume it so differently that... We're not sharing that experience and I'm using the news as an example, but we can look at that as, you know, you can look within an industry, you know, everybody is siloing that, you know, within the tech industry, you have, you know, the med tech group and you have the software group and you have this, there's not like a big sweeping thing where everybody has the one organization because everybody wants to silo by having that game. You created a thing that everybody had in common and people still like to share that sense of, of commonality and common shared experiences. So is that what you were saying by I'm boiling it down in my words.
0: Well, absolutely. It was not only this sense of, of a common touch point, but the other thing that we were creating was we are creating this one experience that, that new players could discover that would lead them to want to go buy the Wii hardware and experience it for themselves. So, you know, imagine, you know, kids are inviting friends over to their house. Hey, let's play this Wii Sports, you know, and they're having this fantastic experience. That child is going to go home and say, mom and dad, we need to buy this Wii so that we <laughs> could get Wii Sports and we could play as a family. It's going to be so much fun. It mushroomed all of these experiences and drove drove the consumer demand of, of people wanting to buy the Wii so that they could play Wii
1: Sports. And that's what happened. You know, my my older daughter, it was like, I have to have a Wii, I have to have a Wii, I have to have a Wii. And guess what? We had a Wii. In fact, I was cleaning some stuff out. She's 26 now. I was cleaning some, 25. I was cleaning some things out and I found the Wii. And I was like, I wonder what we should do with the, with, with this. Is there, you know, is there anybody who wants it? You know, but uh, I remember when I, when I looked at it, I thought, God, there's never been a product that has been more wanted by a kid to come into the house than that. Cause she'd played it at her cousin's house.
0: Well, the, the, the interesting thing about uh, we Sports, we had all of these stories of multi-generational play. So, so grandparents playing with parents, playing with their kids all around this Wii Sports experience, because it was so easy to pick up and play, you know, things that we all, you know, have a shared touch point. And, uh, and it really was a phenomenal decision to include it. And to have it be that common touch point, it it really was a handful of of, uh, key courageous decisions that made that product the spectacular
1: success that it was. So, Reggie, this has been a great conversation. Any last words on disrupting the game that that every business person should hear? You
0: know, when I wrote disrupting the game, I, I wanted to make sure that throughout the book, I had these practical lessons that could be applied, whether you are a senior level business person, or whether you're just starting your career. I, I labeled these the so what in, in the, in the book and I, I, they're peppered throughout the book. So I really encourage you if, if you're intrigued by these stories, if you're intrigued by, by the thought of how to take an industry, uh, a company, and disrupt it, turn it upside down and drive it forward. Really encourage you to go pick up Disrupting the Game from the Bronx to the top of Nintendo.
1: Nice. I love that. So uh, if people want to find out more about you, Reggie, how do they find you? So go to
0: ReggieFissime.com with the little hyphen between uh, between, uh, my last name. You could do a, a, a a Google search and, and all of this information will come up, but you know, all, all you need to do is uh, is find a, a few tidbits of me or my background, or if you're a Twitter fan, go to at Reggie on Twitter, and, and you can find me there as well.
1: Hey, you got the at Reggie. No, nobody beat you to that. Nobody beat me to it. That's awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I am going to go and get the book. I'm very excited about this. It fits into a lot of stuff that I'm doing in various areas of my life that I have to do some disruption. So this is really exciting. Uh, And thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. You know what? Please go and subscribe to the show on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast joy. Go out there and make your own waves in business. Be disruptive. Shake things up and have some fun along the way while you do it. And whatever you're doing, find a way to positively impact the people who you encounter today and every day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger.